As Mark mentioned, our second lesson is taken from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, and the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Now, O oh God, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and redeemer. Amen. The snow has been teasing us of late, a little bit here, a little bit there. Over the weekend, I got a dusting of that soft snow that glistened in my yard for a few hours before, of course, melting away. It was fun watching my dog sniff it and leave little paw prints, but I remained inside cozy warm. I'm okay with a little flurry teasing, but if we get more than an inch of snow, I have no idea what to do. Like most Southerners, I will freak out, buy out all the milk, eggs, and supposed supplies I need, and then stare at the towers of toilet paper around me as the snow barely grows a fraction of an inch. I'm being dramatic. But snow, for me, is one of those things in the realm of magical and mystical that only occurs rarely. But that's just down here, right? If we were to travel far north, snow is a way of life, and it's no joke. In fact, for the Inuit people, indigenous peoples inhabiting the Arctic and subarctic regions of Greenland, Canada, and Alaska, there are dozens of words that all mean snow. I think it's fantastic. For instance, 
the word aquiloco is for softly falling snow. There's the word pegnartok for the snow that is good for driving a sled. There are specific words for snow falling, snow on the ground, snow used to make water, and even one for the snow in which one sinks. Language is fascinating and complex, and we try our best to express the human experience, but it's not easy, of course. We are limited. But cultures around the world have beautiful and fascinating ways to describe all kinds of things, like the white fluffy stuff that falls from the sky. In other ways, we have a scarcity of words to express precious things. In our own English language, there's a huge failure when it comes to one of the most important vocabulary words of our faith, love. We throw this word around haphazardously from expressing our fondness for things, I love ice cream, or I love baseball, to the deep joy that possesses us at the birth of a baby, I love my grandchild. Clearly, there is a distinguishing depth between our love of ice cream and the love we express to those we hold dearly. In our distinct language and tradition, this small four-letter word holds the weight of our salvation, the weight of our identity, and ultimately is the redeeming and sustaining bond we have with our Creator. And so when many of us hear this scripture from 1 Corinthians 13, what do we think of? Just what Mark said. Frilly white dresses, rented tuxedos, elaborate weddings, and young couples about to declare their love for one another. Our culture has co-opted this scripture to prop up the romanticized notions of marriage. Yes, it's certainly a beautiful and poetic reading, but Paul did not write it in mind for romance or as love advice for those getting hitched. This scripture is for all of us because love is the basis of every kind of life, married or not. Life without love is no life. Like the Inuit have various words for snow, thankfully, we can lean on the ancient Greeks who have distinct words for love that can help us. Four, in fact, and I'm sure you've heard of these before. One is eros, which is love inspired by affection or desire, such as erotic love. There's storge, which is familial love, such as with a child or a, or a pet. There's phileo, meaning friendship, such as Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. But Paul uses the most distinct and transcendent form of love here, agape, love that is unconcerned with self, love that seeks the flourishing of others. It is the love that God has for us. The love expressed in John 3.16, for God so loved, agape, the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life.
or from John, 1 John 4.8, God is love, agape. This word appears in the New Testament more than 300 times. And so Paul is invoking this precious form of love as the love the Corinthian church should strive for. And so we cannot reduce Paul's ode to God's love to a bunch of platitudes or aphorisms. Instead, Paul goes straight to the issue at hand and makes us focus on the conflict, the conflict that was tearing the Corinthian church apart. He doesn't seek to put band-aids on their problems, but stares at the conflict head on. This chapter is a down and dirty, y'all need to figure this out kind of lecture from Paul. This is not a sentimental hymn or poem. But instead, we need to step back and get a wider view of the context and see why it's necessary for Paul to dedicate an entire chapter to love. Apparently, this church in Corinth is struggling big time. It was a community of a marvelous multitude of diverse folks, from powerful Jewish leaders to poor Gentiles. This hodgepodge group was not a body of people that were of the same background or status. They were quite the opposite, and they were far from comfortable with each other. There were unmarried women, widows, orphans, slaves, the very dregs of society that most would dismiss. And then there was Crispus and Sothenes, former synagogue leaders, and Erastus, who was the city treasurer of Corinth, all together in this community of faith. And so we can look at this church and marvel at the ways in which they cross cultural boundaries of race, gender, class, and more to, to build this inclusive community called together by God. But the reality of the diversity of their members was causing division that did not reflect that agape love. Life together was proving immensely difficult and fragmenting this church, resulting in multiple letters from Paul to tell them to get in line as those that loved each other and knew Christ. And so we read this letter as something wonderful and lovely, but his letter to them is harsh, calling these Christians to account for their poor behavior and the serious conflict that has arisen. And so to their ears, this epistle is provocative, not sentimental, and would have been shocking and caused anger. And so to get the bigger picture, chapter 13 cannot be read in isolation and must be read in completion with chapters 12 and 14 to understand. Paul has learned that the divisions that have occurred are due to competition, rivalry, and boasting over spiritual gifts. Many of these folks are seeking recognition for themselves and powerful positions in, this, in the church to the detriment of others. They are propping themselves up and claiming spiritual maturity rather than using the gifts for the benefit of all. And so Paul addresses these divisions plainly, naming that all spiritual gifts are from the Holy Spirit and worthy. Each is crucial 
to the development of the church. No gift is better than another. And so in chapter 12, he uses that famous metaphor of comparing the church to a body of diverse members, each having an essential role for the good of the whole. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot would say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear would say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to that body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each of them as he chose. And so Paul emphasizes repeatedly the importance of each individual and their inclusion in the body of Christ. He reiterates this in chapter 14 as well, but the crux of his lecture is in chapter 13. The secret ingredient that shouldn't be so secret to them Love is key. He writes, you can have the most amazing spiritual gift. You can speak in tongues or have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries and knowledge, even have faith to move mountains. But if there is no love, it's nothing. A waste. Your gift is useless. Without love, what you offer are but loud, annoying clanging cymbals and gongs. This is rich imagery. He's saying it's more than just nothing that you are offering. Their insolence causes disruption, an empty, annoying noise, and probably lots of headaches. He utilizes these familiar images to get these stubborn Corinthians to wake up. You see, Corinth was known for its bronze production, and produce multitudes of bronze vessels. According to theologian Richard B. Hayes, since bronze is never used elsewhere to refer to a musical instrument, some scholars have proposed that Paul's phrase refers to bronze acoustic vases that were used in the theater to echo and amplify the voices of actors. The clanging cymbals was associated with the cult of Cybele, noted for its wild and ecstatic worship practices. Thus, Paul's point in verse 1 might be paraphrased, even if you speak with the heavenly language of angels but have no love, your high-toned speech has become like the empty echo of an actor's speech or the noise of frenzied pagan worship. Paul isn't kidding around. You can be a noisy gong that everyone seeks to ignore or run away from, or you can strive beyond your self-centeredness and choose to serve in love as Christ loved us. Paul goes further, helping us to find what exactly love is. He lays it plainly for us, not mincing any words. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant, which are all the things they're guilty of. But in this translation, love is simply the subject. Love is this. Love is not this. But other translators suggest that it should be paired with action verbs, 
making it more dynamic. Love shows patience. Love acts with kindness. Love is doing these actions, not simply just being these things. In the same way Christ was not just love, Christ showed us love incarnate, was active and moving in this world, and was willing to die on a cross to show us what holy, agape love is. And so love isn't just a list of virtues that one seeks to attain, writes theologian Jerry Irish. It constitutes that fundamental relationship to God without which I am nothing. Without God's love, we are nothing. Without Christ's saving love on that cross, our lives are nothing. So patience, kindness, truth, hope, endurance, this is the list that Paul gives us. And yes, we pray for these things, at least I do. But a wise person once told me we shouldn't pray for patience. We should pray Pray for opportunities to practice patience. We shouldn't pray for love, but for opportunities to practice love. We shift Paul's list of things love is into love as an action, love as a verb, love as the thing we offer as Christ first offered it to us. And so as we think about these things, as we strive for love that acts, what opportunities do we need to pray for in order to strengthen our capacity to love? As a community of faith, where do we need to grow together to embody and spread agape love? How can we show the world that unity is possible and precious? Because it's a tough world out there right now. Our divisions in this world seem starker than ever. But do we avoid the conflict that causes division? Or do we, as Paul tells the Corinthian church, seek opportunities to engage love and practice patience, kindness, and agape love that builds up and seeks to help all people to flourish as Christ helped us to flourish? It's not easy. His routine began at every arena about four hours before tip-off, as it had for years. It's the first thing I do when I get there. The late NBA player Kobe Bryant once said, for 20 years, his entire career, Bryant played for the LA Lakers. And without fail, he would begin his pregame shooting routine. The stands are empty, save for ushers and others preparing for the game, but largely Bryant has the building and the court all to himself, and so he would typically, typically begin beneath the rim, making 15 to 20 shots with each hand just to get loose, to gain a rhythm and a feel for the ball going through the net. He'd then move to mid-range and shoot from about 15 feet along each baseline at each wing, at the free throw line area, making 15 to 20 shots at each spot. He'll then sink some free throw, though there's no limit there. And on and on and on, every game for 20 years. 
It's nothing fancy or flashy, yet his dedication to practicing led him to a remarkable legacy. And so this is what I've tried to reiterate with our confirmation class over and over again, that just like they need to consistently practice their sports, soccer or baseball, whatever it might be, to hone those skills, we too must practice the skills of faith and love. It's no different. Practice means making mistakes, failing, but dedicating ourselves to continue to seek to train our muscles until they reflexively do as we wish. Love showing patience takes time to develop. But in honing our patience, perhaps something deeper will occur that we never expected with the one we are practicing, a relationship that we never imagined. Experiencing firsthand agape love with someone we've written off, these things are possible, but it takes practice. And so we ask, is such love humanly possible? As an individual character trait or a personal attitude, no not by ourselves, but as the presence of God's love in Christ crucified and in a community of believers that live in that love, yes, that love is possible. To belong to God's church in Corinth is to be an agent of God's love in the world, not seeking one's own advantage, but working on behalf of others. And so perhaps that's what church is for. It's a playing field for us to practice those skills together in order to take them out into the world. It is here, together, that we can practice building our love and patience and endurance and agape love. As Mark Hardy pointed out, Valentine's Day seemed to arrive the day after Christmas. It's kind of nice to get that chocolate, and I'm kind of excited about my hologram cat and dog valentines. It's kind of crazy. But agape love can't be commercialized. Love is not something we wait to passively receive. It's not an emotion we wait to feel from another human being. Paul never says that such love feels good, right, scholar Brian Peterson? But true love is not measured by how good it makes us feel. In the context of 1 Corinthians, it would be better to say that the measure of love is its capacity for tension and disagreement without division. But thankfully, friends, we aren't on our own, wading into the muck of tension and disagreement, though it does take us being willing to break open our hearts to others to do this. We can't do it on our own, and nor are we expected to. That is the nature of God's love for us through grace. That is why Christ came among us as one of us knew our pain, our sorrow, our joy and delight. Christ was and is agape love perfected. And thankfully, God's Spirit moves with us as we seek to practice love 
And it does something unimaginable that we never could do for ourselves. It shows us that love never ends, that love is eternal, and love cannot be contained, for it burst through the tomb doors on that Easter morning and proclaimed agape love resurrected. And so yes, we may not have many words for love in our language, but ultimately the word became flesh and came among us and showed us what agape love is. Amen.